Welcome to Dublin, end of January. My name is Tomás O'Leary. I'm the CEO and founder of Origina, and we have another podcast for you here. I'm here with my very good friend and colleague, Brendan Walsh, and we're here for another edition of Two Guys Discussing Software. Yeah, two Irish guys, Tomás. And uh, yeah, welcome to 2020, first podcast of the year. It's very exciting. The sun is actually shining outside. It is. Yeah, it is. It is shining outside. Well, I can see the sun from where I'm sitting. Uh, What have you been doing? Well, I had a busy Christmas. Yeah? Yeah, and New Year. Did a bit of travel. It's been very busy. It's the end of our first quarter, as you know. So uh, it's been pretty crazy. And we're about to start getting into conference season. So a lot of conferences coming up in the next while. So You're looking pretty well because I heard you were out last night. I was. It was quite... (laughs) A quiet one. Yeah, you know I was out because we were out together. Oh damn! Okay, yeah, we'll yeah, yeah. we'll we'll move swiftly yeah, on. Preparing yeah. for our podcast. So we have <laughs> we have a fantastic guest later, Dan Eilert. Dan is an ex journalist with the Financial Times and the Economist Group. I know Dan personally for quite some time. He's a good friend of mine. He is an expert in, in marketing. He's yeah. an expert on branding. He is founder of various different companies, Green Bank, um, Proposo. He's done lots and lots of work with big brands. And in fact, he's even worked with some of the mega vendors himself in the past. Mm-hmm. So I'm really looking forward to having a chat. The conversation today we're going to talk about is mega vendor brands. What's happening to them? Why is it that they just can't help themselves falling over and making bad mistakes no matter what they do? And that's, I mean, maybe it's not across all of them. So we're going to have a little chat about some of that stuff. Yeah. You've been tracking some news on some of our favorite ones, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, there's a bit of news out there. Well, to start with the numbers, you know, I'm the numbers guy a little bit. Uh, so IBM, start with IBM. No. They, yeah, one of our favorite mega vendors. But it, they've announced their fourth quarter revenue results and end of year. So amazingly. Stop. Yeah. Now, after five quarters of decline, we've had some growth. Woo. Yeah. Excellent. Well growth. done, Ginny. Yeah. Well, well done, Ginny. And it's an impressive job. So Q4, 21.77 billion in revenue. So wow, they've made, made huge progress over 2018, 21.78 billion. Okay, so do the math, please. 0.1% of a change. Okay. So I don't know if that counts, um, but the market seems to be having kind of mixed reactions. Probably because overall year on year, they're down 3%. So they're down set to 77.1 billion from 79.6 billion in 2018. So they're down year on year. But they're up quarter on quarter. Well, they bought Red Hat, so I suspect some of that, some of those numbers are Red Hat numbers. So I wouldn't really say they're up at all. I mean, if you buy a company with revenue, you're going to get more revenue. So I'd say they're probably down. In yeah, truth. I mean, Red Hat is the shining star. Yeah. Its, re- its revenues are up, um, making a big contribution. And you know, the markets have reacted reasonably positively towards it. And IBM themselves are suggesting that it's going to get better, and 2020 is going to be a big year. Yeah. We're going to see more growth, but not everybody believes that. So. Morgan Stanley, for example, have come out and said that they don't think so. They think actually they're going to see the long-term revenue growth actually less likely right? You know, than IBM thinks themselves because without a meaningful shift in their portfolio yeah, and because IT budgets, budget growth is actually deteriorating. Yeah. So they just don't see... Well, do you know where it, Ginny was, though? She was in Davos. Yeah, during the revenue. When all this was going on, she right. was over in Davos. Okay. So, you know, she, was, she was with Ivanka Trump. And her big theme while she was there was about trust. So do you trust the numbers? Do you trust the company? And her big theme was around, really? actually, what you should be doing is 
the industry, the tech industry. Now, some good words there, to be fair, to be fair. So, good about you have to trust them. Yeah. Do okay. we? The question is, I do, don't know. do we trust them? Well, a bit like politicians, you know, they make lots of promises and they break them. But, but I've seen some stories in the news that would suggest that maybe they can't yet be trusted. Ah, so, okay. So we're in Dublin, but, but close to Dublin in Manchester, the co-op group is suing IBM over failure to deliver. Ah, stop. Yeah, I know. Another uh, one of those stories. It's a long-running spat, no. actually. And, we, and it's been in the news for a while, but, but we know some of the figures now. They're suing IBM for £155 million. Pounds, and co-op claims, actually, it's a deliberate failure to deliver on a new IT platform, the insurance business, because, as you know, the insurance business is breaking away from, from the bank and they've been separated so they need a new IT platform and IBM promised them one but Coop says that IBM screwed up and that 50 months after the proposed delivery date there's still nothing there so they're suing them yeah. and as you can imagine they'd have penalty clauses in the contract so so apparently what's happened is IBM subcontracted the development of the platform or the delivery of the platform to a company called Innovation Group mm. as it turns out now you know you could blame both sides for this that the application that Innovation Group were going to deploy wasn't fit for purpose. It wasn't actually ready out of the box. In fact, worse than that, it was developed for the US market and not for the UK market. Well, brand yeah. damage, brand damage all over the place. And actually, if Ginny had gone hang, hung out with Tim Cook at Davos, who was also there in the, in the background hanging out with politicians, I believe, so, the, so I saw the news and, on the news wires, she could have got some of his money. 92 billion. 92 billion. In one quarter. Sorry, one quarter. One quarter. 92 billion in yeah. one quarter. Yeah. Just downstairs this and week. The, and the net profits are actually outrageous on that. Yeah. But he likes hanging out with politicians. He does. He does. He yeah. loves Irish politicians, yeah, he actually. Was in, he was in Dublin recently. So yeah. Dublin's actually flavour of the month. He was in Dublin recently, not to discuss tax evasion. No, no. 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 Um, no. Come back to that in a moment. But he was in Dublin to get a, an award from our own Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar. I don't know what it was for, like for service to the country or something. Uh, but of course, they're in cahoots, the two boys, because of a 14 point, I don't know, nine. It's a 13, no, yeah, it's a 13, 13 billion. It's a 13 yeah, billion escrow. Yeah, it's the biggest yeah. escrow account. Yeah, we're talking in, in dollars. In the world. Sorry, in, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 13 billion euro escrow account, 14, 15 billion yeah. dollar escrow so account. So the EU Commission want yeah. them to pay it. To Ireland. I know. And Ireland don't we, want the money. We, the Irish people don't need the money. We're just not interested in money. This, would, you, would you leave the money alone, you know? Another one of our actually residents in Ireland is a big player in Ireland and globally, Microsoft. They, yeah. Oh, yeah. Big news this month for lots of people in around the world is the Windows 7. What's going on here? Windows 7, they decide that's the end of it. And we've no choice. What's going on? End What's of life. End of life. And you would have thought... That's okay. It sounds, oh yeah, Windows 7, there's a new version. But by the numbers again, 29.7% of PCs globally are still running Windows 7. So you might think, you know, you just migrate, but that's 446 million users and are now exposed to, you know, security and vulnerability threats that Microsoft won't address. And so everybody's exposed. Yeah, I know it's, it's probably fair enough. Like, so they have a situation where it's 10 years, fine. 10 years, they don't have to develop it forever. But what did we do? We are the consumers. All those, what are all those PCs? Where are they going to go? They're going to go in landfill. Mm. People have no choice. You can't have a situation where a private company, even though we're a public company, but it's not a, a legislator's, it's nobody votes for these guys. And yet they can dictate to everybody else 
what it is we do with our technology devices. The legislators need to make changes here. They need to say to these companies, actually, either you make it open source mm-hmm. or you continue to support it because you can't create something that's used and that has that impactful on society. It's absolutely wrong. They need to do something about that, mm. you know? I mean, I don't know what... So what, is, what was the number again of PCs? Well, well, uh, 446 million users, you know. So who'll be expected to pay, I think it's called extended support fees, yeah. if they want to have continued support on the product, yeah. you know. So. I mean, there must be something we can do on the... on the, the That's, that, again, impacted their brand, impacted their image, it's, 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 and it's terrible for yeah. the rest but of us. But you should be given options. Yeah. There's no option. There. No option there's no there. option because yeah. it isn't open source yeah. and there's no ability for, you know, third-party yeah. providers to and fix I, it. And I see the um, president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, was in Davos as well, and he was talking, I was looking at what all the different things are happening in Davos. Speaking of regulation, artificial intelligence... It's the we all know artificial yeah. intelligence is here today in some shape or form and it's going to shape our lives for the rest of the, perhaps into the future quite significantly. Drives cars, it does all sorts of things for us already. It's going to have to be regulated according to Microsoft themselves. Yeah. So the industry obviously seeing what's happening, particularly in Europe with the change in the commission that happened. Thierry Breton, the French uh, commissioner, uh, Marguerite Vestager as well, who's still in, in, in place. The commission now has probably put its sights on the big tech industry. And we see it in the US as well. There's a lot of noise in the United States, in Washington as well, about the power of the tech industry. It looks like finally the tech industry has said, okay, we accept, we can't self-regulate. We can't be the biggest industry by a country mile and have that much impact on society and have absolutely zero regulation. Like you can't actually pull oil out of the ground or gas out of the ground without a license. You can't be a, a bank or insurance company without some sort of license or regulation. It's the only industry in the world that you actually need almost zero regulation. The first piece of regulation that came down for this was the GDPR piece. That's it. You know, so we need, I mean, I'm not saying we want, you know, a state of regulations we want, but we need some sort of rules. You need yeah. rules of the road. Everybody else has them. They have none. So it's no surprise that, yeah. they've huge, they've, that their valuations are absolutely through the roof. Yeah. And I mean, you know, particularly when you see what's happening with, you know, Facebook servers being exposed, you know, phone numbers, 400 and something million phone numbers exposed and unencrypted contractors listening in to, to, to telephone conversations that are happening over some of these channels. Yeah. So, yeah, there needs to be regulation. The big six are at it, you know, Amazon, IBM, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely has to be there. Protect and even user. speaking of Facebook and Twitter, they, they themselves have come out as well just a few weeks ago saying that they want the commission to actually regulate them as well. I mean, there's been so many broken promises, though. These big brands spend their time doing things, some crazy things, you know, across the board. We've got, you know, look at in the United States, Apple pushing back on the right the to repair. Right, the right to repair. Yeah. The yeah. fact that you could actually have some of this technology repaired by independent organizations. They don't want this. They no. want to make sure you buy a phone from them. They tell you a piece of technology. They decide when you actually... Well, they want you to buy a new phone. Yeah. And they want you to throw away the old one. Yeah. And that goes to landfill. I mean, actually, they're claiming, or they're telling the California Consumer Protection Committee that the reason they don't want third parties repairing their phones is because, well, the batteries might explode. And if the consumers try to get them replaced, so they're coming up with these yarns, as we say here yeah. in Ireland, to to convince you know the consumer protection committee not to allow them. And they're missing they're paying the taxes, are they? Well, I mean, listen, like talk about brand damage. The big six, you know, aggressively avoiding paying over a hundred billion in tax globally, according to the fair tax mark. Amazon, the worst offender, apparently over a decade has 
paid only 3.4 billion in tax in the decade despite earning 960 million so you know an effective tax rate of about 12 percent and so but facebook also part of i think it's one of the lowest in the silicon six facebook has paid 7.7 billion in tax in the last decade on profits of 75 billion so an effective tax rate of about 10 percent but they also got fined five billion for the Cambridge Analytica scandal. I mean, yeah. talk about the number of things we we could talk about. Yeah. We could go on all day here, yeah. and I, I am very keen to bring Dan. Dan, are you there? Yeah, hi guys, how's it going? Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. You probably hear us talking here about big t- tech vendors across the world, what they're doing to damage their brands. I mean, there's so many things that, that they do out there. The question I guess we'd like to start with, and, and thanks for joining us, it's great to have you on the show, is, it, is there nothing that could be done here? This is just the nature of things. When you're a big company, it's going to be good news stories and bad news stories. It's a bit like politics. There's nothing you can do about it, and you just got to try and put the best foot forward. Is that, is that the way it is? Uh, I mean, th- thanks for having me on the, on the show, first of all, guys. Um, I think... I think the main thing is it's it's when companies break promises, right, and 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 sort of stray from what their core competency is, and that they promise on that, that they get into trouble. So you know, there's there's lots of different variations of that, but obviously Facebook, you know, pretends it's your friend. It's all about friendship, all about trusted relationships, and you know, there they were actually uh, enabling a company to take all of your data and go and do something pretty uh, sinister with it. And um, you know, and and Cambridge Analytica are not the only company. That have been found to be doing that. You know, there's a number of other companies that are now doing it. It's still they're just doing it in different jurisdictions. So there's there's companies that are doing all this sorts of stuff all of the time. And you know, Facebook has a has a real problem in, in trying to sort of pull this back in and controlling it. I think the issue is that you know there's so many moving parts of the big companies, as you guys know, right? They're massive, massive machines, and you have politics, you have you know processes, sometimes bad management, bad communication, a lot of times. Um, but when something breaks, you know, like people don't often know a how to react, or they may not be prepared for it. You know, they may have the best intentions in the world, but they may just not have thought of something. Um, and I think that's what really happens. It's sort of it's the, it's the machine that breaks down. Yeah, and you've you've done in your in your career, and I mean your business that you have today, your your consulting company. You've worked with many of these big brands in the past, haven't you? Uh, yeah, quite a number of them. Um, quite a lot. I mean, they. Um, you know, all very nice people. Most people have the best of intentions. It's just they get caught off guard quite a lot. And every now and then, you know, if, if you're talking about press, you know, there's two types. There's obviously the proactive and there's the reactive. Reactive can catch people off guard pretty much any time with anything. So people try and do reaction training, um, you know, and, and sort of prepare for things with things like media training and scenario training for sort of crisis situations, etc. And those things can catch you off guard, right? There are ways to prepare for those sorts of things, but not always. But then say you'll deliver on something that's your core business and you don't deliver on it that trips people up and when you start saying things that stray out of your core business and promising on things that aren't core you know that's really where the weaknesses are because you don't have the evidence to pick you know back those sorts of things up so you know, those sorts of things are the things that journalists pick up on immediately because they can just sense that there's no evidence to back up a claim um, and that people are just you know being hungry for pr i think things have got a lot more transparent in many senses but, you know, there's still a long way to go. And do you think some of these companies, I mean, you look at, say, an organization like, and this is my own impression as an as, as a observer on the market, say a company like Oracle, take for example. It's almost as if they want to be seen as this tough, mean 
company. I mean, that's the impression, like, with their very aggressive audits and their speed at which they sue and they're in court in so many different places. It's almost like they, they actually don't mind. There may be negative connotations to that, but actually there's also potentially positive ones to their business in that ultimately be aware that these guys are out there and they, they will be tough on you. And Larry Ellison seems to portray that kind of tough guy kind of image. Perhaps that's deliberate. Do you think that's deliberate? I mean, there's definitely a caricature, you know, or a character that Larry Ellison portrays in the marketplace and, and people know what that is. And I think there is certainly each of those companies, you know, the companies you mentioned, each of them has a character and a culture that reflects almost like the leadership that's in charge. Right. Um, and fundamentally, you know, they're, they're all, you know, they're all listed companies. You know, they have to make their targets. They have to make the profits uh, for their shareholders. So, so, you know, there's that responsibility to deliver the money and they do get aggressive. Of course they do. And while you've got the quarterly reporting cycle going, I'm not sure how, how you can kind of avoid getting into that cycle of aggression because, you know, and sort of bun fights to the top place. But what I do think is that not, not everybody is, is playing that way. I mean, maybe I'm an optimist and I've got too much trust in people and brands, but I think there are certain brands that don't mind being aggressive and they will take legal, you know, legal action and they're just prepared for it. You know, there's a business case in doing it for them in some cases, but others are generally trying to do the right thing. And, and more and more, I think the more kind of, you know, you mentioned Davos and it is interesting, you know, Davos. I think Davos this year has come in the public eye probably more than ever and people have questioned the value of it and why governments are spending so much money. I mean, even the Pakistani prime minister, you know, came out and said this week, well, you know, I've gone to Davos. I went, you know, I went there. We're not paying for it because it's more than $50,000 for a membership, but a couple of companies have chipped in so I can go and attend. Um, people are starting to question the value of, of that. And, you know, big vendors sort of prop up that platform for a lot of talk, but, but more people are really asking now, right, what is the value of what you do? Whereas, you know, a company like Amazon, it's a lot easier to see the value because it's actually on people's doorsteps as a consumer brand. For a company like Oracle, I don't think that many people get involved with it because it's B2B and they're sort of left to their own devices and they can kind of you know, continue business as they want to. But you, you can see the value of the brands. I mean, obviously, they're delivering a service and people want it. But then at the backdrop of that, they're doing things like we mentioned, you know, they're, they're avoiding paying tax. They're fighting against legislators. They're firing older employees and, and hiring younger, less expensive employees. They're fighting those in the courts. I mean, do they do they actually do anything to self-promote positive news stories? Because you hear a lot of the negative news stories because obviously the journalists can pick up on that. But do they spend money on trying to portray positive sides, you know, as part of their marketing spend? Yeah, I mean, huge. Um, but I think, the you know, in truth, the negative stuff gets picked up on more because it's more interesting. And there's, you know, <laughs> there's there's more of a story there as well that people are interested in. With the positive stuff, um, often that can be seen as, as just propaganda. Now, it depends if there's a genuine story there and there's some good being done or if it's just something to get some column inches. But I think corporate social responsibility has been one where they've invested a lot of money. I think, you know, the, I mean, Microsoft put out that thing the other day saying they're going to be carbon negative. Um, so they're actually going to find a way to account for all of the carbon they've ever produced since the inception of the company, which is a bold claim, right? But I mean, to do something like that, you know, you've really got to be thinking of buying up rainforests and that sort of magnitude. So I don't know. I mean, you know, I think I don't think you're going to get rid of that aggression culture. I think 
um, I think that's always going to be there, whatever. And I don't think it's just the big tech vendors, right? I mean, you're talking about, you know, you can talk about the FTSE and the Fortune companies in a very similar way. They've all got a very similar objective, um, you know, make money come what may. But I think that there is a bit of a tide turning now and people are starting to look at, well, is that all you've got? Is that all you've got? Is that the real value of your business? Can you not do anything more for people? Saying that, you know, it's hard to quantify, right? I mean, you're absolutely right. Some of these things that they do are pretty questionable, to say the least. Yeah. And are there lessons that, you know, newer brands can learn from these, so the st- I guess, mistakes? You know, at the end of the day, you're right. News feeds will and, and the media will always pick up on the negative stories first. OK, so and and we have great fun talking about negative stories on, on this podcast. So it's 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 more fun sometimes talking about the bad stories. And there are, of course, good stories out there, I'm sure. But what the lessons for the so the newer companies on the block, they they seem to avoid in most cases until they become very big. I mean, Uber is a classic example and, and Airbnb, I guess, as well. Two companies that, you know, when they started out was nothing but good news. And then once they got big, suddenly it's all bad news. Is that just the way it's going to be? And what, could, what are the lessons or are there any lessons that the smaller companies can learn along that route? I mean, there's tons, right? I mean, if you look at look at how Airbnb started, you know, they they started with very focused marketing, very locally. They literally went around knocking on doors to get people to sign up for a service, and they tested out how people would respond with the use of it, and so on. And it, you know, it's hyper focused, hyper local, and 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 hyper feedback based. And and similarly, you know, with Uber, you know, again, it was that sort of idea of you know, test something locally and think about how we apply it to the world. You know, when it comes down to it, it's all about the people who lead the business, in my opinion, and what their intentions are, because they're the ones making the, you know, often it's not even the the chief marketing officer or the comms director or the chief, you know, uh, chief of staff making the call on a lot of what's said. Fundamentally, it can come back down to the CEO and the culture that's set by that team really does dictate how. Uh, you know how those bad stories can happen I think and what you know if somebody allows a certain financial way of working to occur uh, because they want to be able to account for more money or they want to be more aggressive with it well that reflects on everything that everyone sees in the company and then you know people think that's okay I think that you know if if you set the culture right to begin with I mean you know we were talking about this as well Tomas which is you know with smaller companies and SMEs they have a tremendous advantage because the leadership team can be so much closer to marketing sales and product and they're really the three levers you need to be sort of, or the three plates you need to be spinning constantly and in coordinate, you know, in, co- in a coordinated way to kind of get things right for customers. I think when you have a bigger company, you know, that leadership team is sort of seven miles up from what's going on downstairs and several layers in between what's happening. And, and, and the real issue is communication, it's connection, it's sort of uh, understanding of what's really happening. And, and I think there's just too much happening for that leadership team to really get on top of all of the things that happen. So, yeah, I mean, the coordination thing's an issue, I think. So, you know, small companies can learn from that. But I think it's hyper-focused marketing practices and culture setting. But the, you say they're, 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 they have an advantage, but because they're, you know, the C-suite is close to what's happening. But they're also, you know, somewhat disadvantaged in the kind of marketing game because their budgets are much lower, right? So we see some of the mega vendors spending 30, 40, 50% of their, their revenues on marketing. So they can pretty much do what they want. They can hire actors to promote their brands. If you're running on 10% of revenue and you're doing a couple of million you know, dollars, but you, you're potentially hyper growth, I mean, you have to be very close, but you also have to be very creative, right? So, um, you know, what do you see as being some of the more creative things that smaller companies need to do 
that maybe the larger companies forget about or ignore? Yeah, I mean, have you seen the one dollar shave ad? Remember that one? Yeah. Yeah. So the one dollar shave ad is, you know, it's this crazy CEO and he kind of goes around his factory talking about one dollar shave and how great it is. But I mean, it's a it's a it's an advert made on a tiny budget, um, but it's brilliant. It's an absolutely fantastic advert. You compare that with some of, say, you know, some of the IBM adverts that they put on after the rugby and, and you've got no idea what they mean or what they're trying to promote or what the actual landing point is or what, the, you know, what the, what, the, what the call to action is. And there's probably a fair, you know, a fair few quid that's been spent on those. I don't necessarily think that the budget equates to good marketing. I think, as you know, as I said, I think the focus is the point. And I think where startups, again, you know, have that advantage is they, when they don't have the budget, they have to use, they have to innovate. They, you know, their backs are against the wall. They've got to move from A to B in a certain amount of time. And if they don't do something to gain more customers or do a certain, you know, gain certain brand, I guess, you know, brand recognition, then the company will fall over. A big company doesn't have that fear. No one's getting fired. Not today, anyway. They might get fired in a year or two if they don't produce some results of some sort. But, you know, they can all um, kind of, you know, for a lot of the time, people can afford to be average in terms of how they, uh, you know, how they go about things. And then every now and then someone pulls something brilliant out of the bag and everyone says that was an absolute winner. Startups have to be brilliant every time. Um, otherwise, they fall over. And I think that, that there's that pressure there. So, you know, you're right. There is a, there is a pressure. But I think that pressure helps people to perform better, you know, and, and they do, can do a lot more with less. And if you were to give uh, any advice to, so, so these big vendors, uh, the mega vendors, if you were to give them one piece of advice to, in order to stay relevant, because there is a danger, as we all know, nothing lasts forever. And as many companies as graveyards in lots of places with companies that were huge at a point in time and then are now irrelevant. What would you say to them? If you were to give an opportunity, what would be the key piece of advice that you'd give them? I think, I mean, perhaps where it's most prevalent for B2B enterprise technology companies is when you read through and help them with their, you know, I mean, I've worked on quite a lot of the big deals that technology companies have put through for, you know, mega transformation deals or, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and these sorts of things. And where it's most, where you sort of see the, the culture seep through the most of, of, of what they really think is when you read the executive summaries and the sort of bid, bid writing, because you can say what you want in the marketing, but actually on the piece of conversion and actually the mindset of the bid team and how they go and pitch, you can really see what it is that they think and how they're approaching the client. And some of those guys are excellent at listening to the client and what the problem is and, and how to actually go about fixing that and re, you know, providing reassurance that that can be done and showing that and evidencing it. I would say a very large number, um, not the majority, but a large number of, of companies wouldn't take that approach. They would just talk about why they're good, because they're big, because they're big, that means they're proven, because they're proven, they can do anything they want to and they'll help you and, and you, you, know, you should be grateful for the fact that they're in your room. And I, and I think that's a very arrogant approach that is in many cases dated and it's not always because of course there's people who are in real trouble who just need someone who they can rely on very quickly to get out of out of bother and they need a trusted name and a brand that can pull things together but you know i don't think it is the case that 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 industry you know in the the tech space that has moved on now there are other companies coming along that are challenging micro markets um and taking pieces out of of you know that that i mean these these big companies right they're they're markets on their own right but they're taking pieces of, of that market away from them and delivering better services now they may not have the scale they may not have the global coverage but actually they can challenge and they can certainly I mean, what often happens is the smaller companies can inform 
a lot of how the bids run as well because they're sort of more in connection with the rest of where the market's going, whereas the big companies can often be a little bit reliant on what the marketing of the company says they should say as opposed to what it is the customers are relying on. So I think the piece of advice I, w- I would give is to listen and then not just to stay on message. Maybe, you know, as you, as you would in, if you were sort of just talking PR, you'd say, right, we're going to build a story and talk about what we're good at and that's it. But not, not to, you know, not to overpromise, but to promise what you can deliver and to stick to it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really good advice. And it'd be fascinating to see what 2020 brings many of these, both the big brands and the smaller brands, but the tech industry is definitely in for a lot of change, a lot of change. Yeah. Dan, really appreciate your, your time uh, on this podcast. Thanks for, for joining us. You're in London at the moment, I believe. Is that correct? I'm in London. I am in the St. Pancras Hotel right now, trying to avoid too much noise uh, seeping into your podcast, guys. So I wanted to say thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. You know, it's great. And uh, best of luck with, Thanks, your, with, your, with your consulting business. There's loads of advice there that you can give any organization. Um, so it's fantastic. So we're kind of at the end of the show, Brendan. Yeah, looking forward to the next one. So There is another one, is yes. It? We're going right. to try and do them every month now. We're going to have one at the end of February. We will be with Richard Beaumont, who is, you were talking about co-op earlier. He mm. was the ex-chief procurement officer of co-op, uh, right. consultant, chairman of many conferences, lovely man. Uh, we've met him in Frankfurt there recently, and yeah, I yeah. met him the previous year he in did, Amsterdam. He did a great job on stage, yeah. And we're going to talk about the mega vendors again, but this time looking at procurement. So those of you right. in the procurement world. But in the meantime, thank you to Dan and thank you, Brendan. Thank and you, Tomo. Thank you, Dan. Please uh, like and share the thing. Those of you listening, thanks to those who listen to us. And we look forward to talking to you at the end of February. Bye-bye.